Record with Furniture Today, a podcast that goes behind the headlines to look at the news and the newsmakers, the people and the personalities that give the furniture industry its unique flavor. I'm your host, Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. Hi, I'm Trisha Yearwood. On behalf of my furniture family at Klausner Home Furnishings, I'd like to welcome you to Furniture Today's On the Record podcast with Bill McLaughlin. If you're in the business and you want to know the stories and people behind the latest news in home furnishings, you've come to the right place. Let's listen in and hear what Bill and his guests are talking about today. Hi, thanks for tuning in. Uh, I am digital and managing editor Thomas Lester, and you are in for a treat today. Joining me on this webinar is a retail expert who's spent some time the upper levels of some key notable national brands, Sears and the Neiman Marcus Group, uh, most notably. Uh, A couple of years ago, he delivered the keynote at our 2018 Next Conference, and he is the author of Remarkable Retail. Steve Dennis joining us. Steve, how are you today? I'm good, Tom. How are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for joining me. Um, well, let's just uh, jump right in, um, you know, with the book. Um, you know, what was, you know, what was your purpose behind writing it? You know, what was your motivation? Well, actually, I, I, I've been wanting to write a book for a long, long time. I really just didn't know what I wanted to write about for, for a while. Um, but really what started to happen over the last few years, particularly as I was doing more keynote speaking, was I was finding a bunch of themes and and recommendations were starting starting to gel together, and so it started to feel like maybe I had enough content for a book. So I got I got focused on that a couple of years ago, and um, I think my motivation, aside from kind of a bucket list uh, <laughs> item, was uh, to, to one force myself to get my ideas put down and and delve into them in more depth than I could in a blog post or a speech or, or what have you. Uh, but also hopefully have something that retailers big and small could benefit from in, in evolving their strategy. Cause certainly not everybody's going to come hear me speak or, or hire me as a consultant or what have you. So it's really to kind of spread the word more, uh, more broadly, I guess. Okay. Well, in the book, you identified um, eight essentials of retail, um, digitally enabled, human-centered, harmonized, mobile, personal, connected, memorable, and radical. Um, In in today's retail environment, um, you know, how has that been affected? And do you feel like um, it's made some of those essentials um, a little bit more important? Well, you know, it's hard to make a sweeping statement about all of retail. I'm pretty careful not to do that. But I think that um, if anything, that framework is is more relevant for a lot of retail. Obviously, I finished writing the book back back in the fall before the whole pandemic. And so that wasn't something that was really, really at the forefront. But what I try to lay out in the book is why it is so important to be more remarkable. Um, this idea of even very good is not good enough anymore. There's a whole bunch of reasons for that that I go through in the in the first part. But the eight essentials framework, um, I think, applies to just about every retailer's situation. And one of, one of the things I say in the book is that the first six are becoming um, more table stakes. In other words, if you aren't fairly proficient at those six, 
then you're likely falling behind. And I think for sure the pandemic has made that um, even more clear. So for example, harmonized, which is number three, which is really my term for omni-channel. There's a bunch of reasons why I don't like the term omni-channel, which maybe we'll talk about. <laughs> right. But the idea of harmonize is really to embrace the blur that, that shopping has become and really have your brick and mortar assets and your digital assets very well integrated. Um, and then number one, digitally enabled really speaks to how more and more customer journeys are starting in a digital channel, whether they end up uh, as an e-commerce transaction or a curbside pickup or a more traditional in-store shopping. And I think both of those essentials in particular um, are really proving to be um, you know, pretty darn important in today's environment, I think, going, going forward. But, um, but so, so I feel, you know, again, it's one, one of the scary things about writing a book is you put stuff down and then it's there forever and um, and you can look really insightful or really stupid. And uh, I think for the most part, uh, the things that are in the book are, are looking to be pretty good advice, um, even in this new world we're facing. Um, you know, you just uh, touched on, you know, being good enough or pretty good really isn't good enough anymore. Yeah. And you've written a lot about, um, you know, Retail isn't dead, but boring retail is. Right. Well, um, you know, can you give me some examples? You know, what's the flip side? You know, what does exciting retail look like um, today? Sure. Well, first, I should probably say I, I sometimes get get pushback on using the term boring retail. People have said to me, "Well, it's never been a good idea to be to be boring," and I and I guess that's true. But the the point I'm trying to make is that if you go back. 20 years for sure, but I would say even, even within the last seven or eight years, many retailers could get away with being pretty average, whether you want to call that boring or not, you know, right. that's up to you. But that was because, uh, number one, consumers often didn't have a lot of choice. Uh, before e-commerce was a significant thing, their shopping choices for the most part were whatever retailers happened to be in your town whatever hours they happen to be open, whatever products they happen to carry in stock or could get for you in a reasonable amount of time. And from an information standpoint, you were largely relying on traditional marketing or whatever the salesperson happened to tell you. But with the advent of, of the internet in particular, now we can buy just about anything we want, you know, anywhere, anyway, any time of day. Um, information on quality of products, pricing, et cetera, is ubiquitous. And we, you know, with our smart devices in particular, we can be shopping anytime we want to, you know, anytime the moment strikes us. So in this world of abundance, uh, it just really raises the bar for retailers to compete. So that's a little bit about what I mean by the death of boring, boring retail. Um, so, so the flip side of that is, is really to be remarkable. And by remarkable, I'm using it largely the way that Seth Godin did in his book, Purple Cow, which I would recommend to mm -hmm. people. Um, so there's the more traditional thought about being remarkable, which is to be really unique or, or distinctive. But the important thing and the distinction I try to make in the book is that's part of it. But the other part is that you create a story for the customer that they want to share, that touches them in a very powerful way. And they will spread the idea 
of, of that brand experience. So, you know, that can play out a lot of different, a lot of different ways. I think the retailers that are remarkable today, number one, they're intensely customer relevant. Number two, they're doing something, I think in most cases that has a strong emotional connection with the consumer. And there's some sort of wow element that really helps differentiate that retailer from kind of the rest of the rest of the competition. So see that playing out in a lot of different ways. I think, um, you know, in the home furnishings industry, I think restoration hardware, Nebraska Furniture Mart um, are some of the more remarkable retailers that I see. But, um, you know, we see it play out a lot of different, a lot of different industries. And yeah, having been to the, uh, the Nebraska store in the Dallas area, yeah, there's, there's definitely a wow factor. <laughs> You know, even, you know, you know, as you're pulling up, you know, it's just so massive. Yeah. And I think, you know, certainly when you're talking, you know, one of the reasons why I, and I talk about uh, Nebraska Furniture Mart and, and Restoration Hardware in the book, I, I think they're, you know, why both of them, I, I use both of them as an example of retailers that are, are literally remarkable or memorable, uh, but they're also an example of retailers that have gone bigger rather than smaller. And so they were a little bit counter narrative, right? Where this idea that we should be closing stores and stores that we have should be smaller. Restoration hardware and Nebraska Furniture Mart are going in a really different direction for different reasons. But Nebraska Furniture Mart obviously casts a very wide net in terms of the customers it's going after and the product categories it's in and so forth. Whereas restoration hardware is really zooming in on a particular sort of customer and going going deep. So there's a lot of different ways to create a remarkable strategy. It's not all about high price or big stores or fancy stores or or whatever. You have to really figure that out for your own particular situation. I know in your book you've uh, you alluded to the let's let's cut, let's shrink. You know that's often detrimental to a, a store being remarkable because you know one that. You know, that cuts, you know, the, the size and, and the scale, you know, that um, eliminates markets in some cases, you know, right. you had mentioned and um, you know, kind of, you know, it, it hurts, uh, you know, from a messaging standpoint, you know, these customers, you know, they don't have as much access as they may have had in the past. So, yeah, I've been saying, saying for a while that, um well, first of all, as a backdrop, even before the pandemic, it's very clear that the U.S. in particular is greatly over-retailed. That's been true. I mean, we were talking about this um, in some jobs that I had 15 or 20 years ago, that, that the U.S. is vastly over-retailed and it's been getting worse for many years uh, for a bunch of reasons. Um, and of course, generally speaking, the growth of e-commerce means um, less retail space is needed. So, so these factors, again, before the pandemic, uh, really were leading to a, an overall contraction of retail space being necessary. You know, the supply and the demand was, was just out of whack. But it's, it's also pretty clear that that affects different segments of retail very differently, right? I mean, plenty of stores have been opened successfully by all sorts of retailers, uh, TJ Maxx and uh, Lululemon and Restoration Hardware, et cetera. So, 
So, you know, you really have to look at the different segments to really sort out the, the store space. But the, the overall thing I've been saying is you generally cannot uh, cut expenses and close stores to prosperity. If you're closing a lot of stores, in general, it's because you have a customer relevance problem, not a too many stores problem. As we see by the relevant retailers, not generally speaking, closing many stores at all. I don't know the last time that Apple closed a store or, you know, we can go down a list of many, many retailers that have closed few, if any stores in, right. in recent years and probably won't um, in the near future. So, uh, so when you close a store, you are not doing anything just by virtue of closing a store to make your brand more relevant. You're making it more difficult for some customers to reach you. Now that doesn't mean you shouldn't close stores. Uh, you know, every retailer situation is different, but the closing of the stores and the cutting of expenses, generally speaking, makes you less customer relevant. And ultimately, if you aren't intensely customer relevant, you are going to have a problem and you're probably just delaying the inevitable. And in fact, I think what we've seen with a lot of retailers over the last five, six, seven years that have closed a lot of stores, most of them are just starting a downward spiral because they've never addressed the fundamental problem that got them into trouble in the first place, which is not being remarkable enough. Um, well, you know, you just touched on e-commerce and, uh, you know, as it relates to the pandemic, you know, in your book, you noted that, you know, some futurists and analysts saw it reaching a 30% share of total retail by 2025. Um, right. But, you know, since the pandemic hit, um, do you think um, that that projection needs to be uh, modified? Well, I think the answer is it's hard to tell. Uh, what I talk about in the book is this, or I try to dismiss, is this general idea that Mark Andreessen started a bunch of years ago. And he's a really smart guy and he's got a lot more money than I have. But this idea that software eats retail and that there is no reason basically for physical retail exists. And I think that's just patently silly. And I think all the evidence is that he is very, very wrong about that. And uh, the derivative of that has been some people suggesting some pretty high uh, market share numbers for e-commerce going forward. What we know are a couple of important things. One is that e-commerce has been gaining share of retail at about one point per year. If you look at the last several years, uh, it's about depending on whose numbers you use, it's about 15% of all retail. And projections pre-pandemic was that it would be about 16% of retail next year and about 17%. You know, if you just right. you do a little bit of math, um, you certainly don't get to 30% market share in, in five years' time. Yeah. So um, now, the pandemic is obviously in the short term forcing the denominator down quite a lot and forcing the numerator up. So the market share of e-commerce this year will be disproportionately high. I think it's anybody's guess as to which of these behaviors will really persist or whether we'll just see a slight acceleration of e-commerce over the long term, you know, presuming we have some sort of vaccine. Right. Um, the other thing I think it, or two other things I think that some of this discussion misses. One is what I talk about in the book and others have talked about is the distinction between buying and shopping. 
mm-hmm. which is, and what I mean by that is buying behavior is largely kind of low consideration shopping where you're on a mission, you're just trying to get it off your list. You're probably somewhat price sensitive, but you're very convenience sensitive, whether convenience is I want to see all the stuff that meets my needs and be able to get it quickly, or I want to get it fast, uh, or I want to get in and out of the store and I don't need sales help. Shopping is more emotional, more discovery, and tends to be places where either you're putting things together, like in the case of home furnishings, maybe putting a room together or trying to figure out if it's going to look good in your current setting uh, and so forth. And e-commerce is really good at buying. And e-commerce is generally really bad at shopping. And so there would need to be very, very significant technological changes and changes in human behavior for e-commerce penetration to accelerate. Because for it to accelerate significantly means it would have to start to grab a lot greater share of shopping than it currently does. And it's very hard to work out how that would happen. So it's one of the reasons why grocery shopping, for example, is only about 3% online grocery shopping is only about 3% because a lot of what is entailed with grocery shopping, people feel the need to actually go to the store and e-commerce is not a great alternative um, long-term. I mean, obviously when people were fearful of going or remain fearful of going to the store, that distorts it in the short term, but long term, I think we'll, we'll get back on a more even, but maybe slightly accelerated trajectory. So, sorry, that was a very long one. No, no, that's that's great. That's great. And um, you know, I I definitely agree with the uh, home furnishings being more in the uh, the shopping bucket, as it were, because you know these are these are products that people are, you know, they can buy it online, but they want to see it, they want to touch it, sit in it. Yeah, and the other thing that you're probably aware of, which I think is doesn't get enough tension uh, or two things actually I'd say about e-commerce um, as a separate, and I'll come back in a second to why I think this is maybe not the best way of looking at it. But if you really think about e-commerce as a separate shopping channel versus brick and mortar, you know, for the most part, it's still the case that e-commerce is pretty unprofitable. Uh, Amazon represents almost 40% of all e-commerce as many people probably know and has not made money in retail for most of its life and has struggled to consistently post decent profit margins. Walmart, number two player, um, supposedly loses about a billion dollars a year in e-commerce. We know a lot of the so-called digitally native vertical brands do not make any money. The ones that are public almost all lose quite a bit of money. Wayfair probably being the one that's of most most Uh interest to, to this group. So, so this is not to say that Amazon couldn't figure out how to make more money quickly if they wanted to, uh, you know, but for a lot of the other uh, players in the market, particularly products that are prone to returns, uh, very difficult to figure out how to grow e-commerce profitably. And when you're migrating um, sales from one, the physical channel to the online channel, which is the case, of course, with a lot of legacy retailers, You're generally hurting profits. So what will be interesting to see over time is whether any, well, number one is 
does reality come back to the market <laughs> where <laughs> um, folks like Wayfair, which I will say, I'm sorry if there's anybody on this call that I'm offending, but you know, Wayfair to me is not a viable business model at the scale it's at. They pay way too much money to acquire customers and they regularly price below the market. And so for them to ever be profitable, they have to pull two big levers um, that would greatly decelerate their growth. Um, for other players, you know, there's some, some different issues. So one is, you know, what will happen over time to allow some of these companies to actually make a decent return? Um, which brands will go out of business, which will you know, create some consolidation? And will some of the strategy or some of the features that consumers love, uh, will retailers be willing to invest in maintaining or growing them when the economics aren't very good? Um, so I do think as much as people get excited about some of the so-called um, uh, innovativeness or what have you that, that retailers are putting in place in response to the pandemic, it's mm-hmm. not at all clear to me that uh, a lot of that will persist as much, either because consumers will revert to old behaviors or they won't want to pay a premium for some of these expensive services, or retailers will just slow walk some of them because the economics are not good. Well, um, you know, running the risk of uh, getting off on a tangent here um, <laughs> with those uh, DNVs, um, you know, the difficulty in becoming profitable is that why we're seeing a lot of them, you know, establishing brick and mortar or partnering with uh, with stores, you know, like um, yes, many of them are in you know in in a Target for an example or uh, a West Elm or you know you know. Right. Yeah, well, the, the premise of a lot of these brands um, as initial venture capital investors was that they could become significant brands essentially only online. And as it's turned out, that was a very poor investment premise because it actually turns out that it's very expensive to build brands online beyond a certain, certain scale. So what, what most of them, at least the ones that I'm familiar with, have discovered is that their cost of acquisition and, and actually wafers not to pick on them more but wafer is a great example where they're the, as they grow the cost of acquisition has been going up and the value of the customers they're acquiring has been going down um, that is a very bad recipe <laughs> that any other place I worked um, you know I would have gotten fired from pursuing that strategy but you know in, in um, some of these moonshot investments, uh, you know, that's a feature, not a bug. But, um, but I think, you know, what, what's come to be understood over the last several years by more sophisticated investors is if you're going to grow to a certain level, you're going to have to figure out how to get your customer acquisition costs down. And you're going to have to be able to reach a larger market. And in many cases, all roads lead to physical stores because it's pretty clear that for some customers, not all, in order to get that first sale, they have to experience your brand in a physical location. Now, as you point out, some, some folks, um, certainly some of the mattress players, are exploring wholesale distribution as well. But I think it's all about how do I reach a wider audience because the path that I was on was not getting to be a big enough business. How do I get customer acquisition costs down because the path I was on was not 
sustainable. The more I grew, the more I lose. And in some cases, um, product returns are very, very high as well. And I think generally we know that online product returns can be 30, 40%. In-store product returns tend to be significantly under 10. And you know, certainly in the furniture business, generally uh, cost of returns can be really, really um, problematic for the economics. Well, um, let's, uh, well, are there any retail concepts that you feel, you know, might be a bit under tap today? And, um, you know, looking at the crisis that we're, we're in, do you see any um, opportunities emerging? Well, I, I think generally where I see the problems in retail and where there may be opportunities for innovation tend to be with the brands that are really addressing this this vast middle where they're trying to be a little bit of everything to everybody, um, you know, which is a pretty valid. So if you look at uh, some of the retailers that have gotten into trouble, whether we're talking about home furnishings retailers or whether we're talking about the broader market, many of them had a strategy of trying to kind of focus on the peak of the bell curve and, and grow geographically by opening a lot of stores and getting the scale from being a regional or, or national retailer. And that was a very valid strategy until it wasn't. And it basically started <laughs> not to be a very valid strategy as both more specialty retailers started to grow, you know, basically pick off segments, somebody going after the value segment or somebody going after a more stylistic point of view. Uh, but certainly as, as e-commerce grew, because that have a little bit of everything for everybody started to be a weakness, not an advantage. So generally speaking, I think uh, those retailers that are kind of going after that peak of the bell curve generally have some real challenges to try to find ways to be, to be more special. If they've got a real estate strategy that was valid uh, 20 years ago, uh, usually they have to really, really rethink it. I think what's problematic, you know, whether if you took a you know, whether you took a, uh, an art van or, uh, or a Pier 1 or some other home furnishings players that have gotten into trouble mm-hmm. is that, you know, and every, you know, every retailer that has gotten into trouble has often, you know, different, different issues that contributed to it, you know, too much debt or poor execution or being late to e-commerce or, or what have you. But I think mo- the theme that runs through it is they didn't realize how significantly customer behavior was changing and how much what got them to a level of success, say in the nineties mm-hmm. uh, is actually an Achilles heel now. And the unfortunate thing I think is if you're very heavily invested in real estate at the risk of stating the obvious, it's not so easy to change quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, if you should have uh, fewer larger stores, let's say, um, you know, that's easy to say, but not so easy to do when you need the capital to invest in those new stores and you may be stuck with leases uh, in places where uh, you don't necessarily want to be or you don't want to be in that particular footprint. So it's one of the reasons why I think a lot of these newer brands do have a real edge because they're not typically hindered by legacy real estate that they have to reposition they're going in and building their new stores. I'm not saying necessarily that 
you know, say Casper's real estate strategy is going to turn out to work, but, but at least as they're adding new stores, they're building them in the size that the market needs today or closer to that and going into locations where you want to be today and not having to undo real estate decisions of 10 or 20 years ago. Sure. And, um, you know, some of the smaller independent retailers that I spoke to, you know, that I've spoken to, and, you know, this, this may not be applicable to everybody, but um, they said, you know, some of the smartest decisions that they made was um, ownership versus leasing. Yeah. Because, you know, that's, you know, you, you get, you know, a, a little bit more control that way. You're, you're not beholden to the landlord and, and the rents. And, right. Well, that was something, wasn't it? This is Tricia again for Klausner Home Furnishings. From my very first collection, I knew I'd come to the right place, that Klausner understood what I wanted to do with my furniture, how I wanted to share my recipe for comfortable living with the world. Now let's get back to Bill McLaughlin and see what he and his guests have to share with us. You spoke of Art Van and Pier One. Um, you know, now they say if you if you can't be a good example, you can always be a good warning. Right. So, right. <laughs> so, you know, you mentioned, you know, you know, the things that may have worked in the past, you know, not necessarily working today. You know, what what takeaways can, you know, home retailers take from, you know, their examples, you know, maybe more recently, uh, you know, a Tuesday morning? Well, I think one general one, which I still think um, is hindering some retailers is, and I, and I actually meant to touch on a little bit earlier, is thinking about e-commerce and brick and mortar as relatively distinct entities. And I think Pier One's a great example of a company that was very slow to invest in e-commerce. And mm-hmm. as I understand it, uh, and, and frankly, you can say the same thing about the off-price retailers today, where they think of e-commerce as a separate channel. And one of the reasons why they don't invest in it aggressively is they don't like the profit dynamics of the channel. Mm-hmm. What they're neglecting to understand, I think, is at least two major things. One is great digital presence in most cases, unless you're Amazon or eBay or Etsy, but in most cases, a great digital presence benefits your physical stores more than it does uh, as, as e-commerce. But Forrester um, published a study a year or two ago, where they showed that digitally influenced brick and mortar sales were about two and a half times as great as sales rung up in an e-commerce transaction or in an e-commerce channel. Mm-hmm. And what I've seen with clients, and I fought this with a couple of retailers that I work with, is there's this thing of thinking about them as two separate businesses, and then the e- e-commerce has got to break even or make money mm-hmm. on its own. And what happens is that causes you to systematically underinvest in e-commerce mm-hmm. because the e-commerce channel is not getting benefit from all the things that are being rung up in brick and mortar stores. The flip side of that is brick and mortar starts to think about e-commerce as competing with them, mm-hmm. which I think we've got enough issues with competing with competition to not worry about competing with ourselves. But brick and mortar, you know, actually contributes to e-commerce and vice versa. So. So the lesson is, um, number one, accept that, depending upon your particular situation, 50, 60, 70, 
of all brick and mortar traffic and brick and mortar sales, those customer journeys are going to start in a digital channel. And if you are not doing a good job of, of getting customers into your digital funnel, so to speak, and, and working them all the way through the customer journey, you are falling behind. And absolutely in Pure One's case and some others, they did not get that <laughs> at all. And they basically watched the last five or 10 years happen to them. And, you know, that wasn't the only problem at Pier 1, mm-hmm. but that was a big one. And I would argue, you know, there are plenty of other examples of, of retailers that got too caught up in the two-channel thing and our customer's not an e-commerce uh, customer or whatever. And you just have to think about it as the customer is the channel. Your job is to put together this harmonized experience with any luck. Uh, you will maybe acquire a customer in the brick and mortar channel and they'll ultimately transact online or vice versa, or the mix of it will all, will all work out. So, um, so I think that's, I think that's the single biggest lesson probably um, of the last 10 years is how many legacy retailers just fundamentally didn't see what was happening in in customer behavior and got into the siloed uh, way of managing. And that just caused them to miss many opportunities and invest in the wrong way. Yeah. Last year, I, uh, had a chance to see Neela Montgomery from Crate and Barrel speak. And she said, you know, point, you know, just came out and said, she doesn't care where they buy. If it's in store, great. If it's online, great. Um, You know, so ultimately, uh, you know, it should be a symbiotic relationship. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I had a, um, I I don't, uh, I don't talk about this so much in the book, but uh, when I was at Neiman Marcus, uh, bunch of years ago now, it's only 13 or 14 years ago when I was working on our, we call it multi-channel at the time, (laughs) harmonized, but we were very siloed and uh, we had a president for online. We had a president for Burger of Goodman and a president for the Neiman Marcus stores. And to me, there was just a lot of bad behavior that was uh, not because people weren't well intended, but we were systematically set up to do the wrong thing. And so when we started doing some studying, I went out to talk to some other companies that seem to be doing a better job of this. And I went out to see Pat Connolly, who at the time was the CMO at Williams-Sonoma. And Williams-Sonoma was a company that seemed to have gotten this omni-channel stuff, multi-channel, whatever, figured out pretty well. And so I went to see him and I was explained what our challenges were and what we were doing and so forth. He said something like, well, you're about the 50th person to come see me in the last couple of years. And I don't (laughs) mind meeting with you, but I have to tell you, that I don't know if I can really help you. And I was kind of disappointed. And he said, he said, well, the reason is that we never set ourselves up the way you did in the first place. We started as a catalog company. And this is what's really funny too, because all the digitally native vertical brands are basically, you know, saying this now as if they were the first people to ever come up with it. But anyway, that's a different story. But anyway, he said, you know, we started as a catalog company and then we realized that our sales were being limited because we didn't have stores. Our customers were telling us they wanted to touch and feel the product and get sales help or whatever. So we opened stores where we already had good mail order penetration. And it turned out when we opened a store, the store did well and our mail order business got better, you know, which is mm-hmm. something that all the digitally native vertical brands have been saying for the last few years. And we always marketed just to customers and we didn't care like, you know, we did some analysis in terms of target marketing, but 
We didn't care whether they bought from the catalog or they bought in the store. Then we moved the catalog online, basically, and the same thing happened. And, and so it was always an understanding that we should be agnostic between channels and that our marketing was going to drive people to different channels based upon their preference. And yeah, we could fine tune it, but they never established themselves in that way. They never had different buckets of inventory. They never had different IT systems. And, you know, I think yeah. that's one of the reasons why um, they've been successful over the years. So the challenge, I think, for legacy retailers has been to undo, <laughs> you know, the <laughs> silos, basically, and to um, organize and measure performance in a all-channel way and embrace this blur of shopping. Um, I mean, that's a challenge is that it's hard to do when your your culture has been operated uh, in one way for many, many years and your IT infrastructure is lined up in a different way and so forth. I guess that kind of goes back to the um, you know beliefs versus ideas. It's a lot easier to change an idea than it is to change a belief. So. Yeah, and I, you know, and I think that um, you know what I've learned, and perhaps it's it's stating the obvious, but if, if you don't have a CEO, who you know, if I, when I've looked at the companies that were successful early on in this embracing the blur, as I talk mm-hmm. about of customer shopping today, they're either the REI, Eddie Bauer, William Sonomas of the world that never, you know, they just evolve their business model. They never set it up separately. Or they're brands that made an affirmative decision to be channel agnostic years ago. And so Nordstrom is a great example of, of, of that. Um, if, if the CEO and the board are not fundamentally behind this, this change, you know, because it is cultural, it does change the way people get paid and business performance is measured. It does involve, in many cases, some pretty significant investment technology. Then, you know, it's not likely to gain much traction. Um, going back to the book, you, uh, you know, I guess this is more in your wheelhouse. You reference a lot of your, you know, these larger national brands. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know what? You know what? Some, what? You know some of the lessons that you feel might be more applicable to you know your smaller single stores, your independent sure. operations. Uh, yeah. You know what? Yeah. You know you know if they were to get your book, what would be most relevant and meaningful for them? Yeah. So so one thing actually I wish I had done more in the book has been been more explicit about mm-hmm. smaller retailers because uh, I agree I think a lot of the examples. Um, that I talk about in the book tend to be well-known national brands, but I think the um, for the most part the the eight essentials framework really applies to any retailer. I think the challenge that I see with smaller retail retailers typically is it's certainly much harder for them to really compete with the big boys when it comes to, in particular, technology investment. Um, but I think a lot of the technology investment or the thing that they have to be careful about is not trying to out Amazon, Amazon. I think Amazon sucks up so much noise in the retail world that there is a tendency to try to be like Amazon. And I think there are plenty of lessons, certainly that can be learned, um, from studying what Amazon does 
there are things in the customer experience that are becoming expectations because Amazon has, has set them. But you have to be careful to really pick a lane. You know, are you, are you going to try to out Amazon, Amazon, or are you going to try to really be special mm-hmm. in fundamentally different ways? And so that I think is, you have to be really, really careful because, because as I talk about in the book, the problem with trying out Amazon, Amazon is you're going to engage in a race to the bottom. And uh, as my friend Seth says, the problem with the race to the bottom is you might win or worse, finish second. And most small retailers in trying to compete with Amazon are going to finish second. Um, so, so you have to be mindful of kind of the table stakes of customer experience that Amazon might have made relevant for your particular situation. But then you have to really lean into those things that you can uniquely do. And in a lot of cases, that has to do with more personalization, you know, like in, in-person personalization, um, leaning into the things that make for a great physical store, you know, whether that's a larger store or a specialty store, you know, product curation, ambiance, um, going above and beyond in, in personal services, as I said. And the nice thing is with platforms like Shopify um, and some others, but particularly Shopify, in many cases, you can get to be, you know, pretty darn good at a lot of the basics of, of e-commerce and, and some omnichannel capabilities without having to spend the vast dollars to develop yourself. So I think it's a matter of saying, okay, what are those things that I have to be more or less at parity with because they've just become expectation, but what are those things I'm really going to try to amplify that will really make me remarkable that I'm in a unique position to do that aren't easily copied by my competitors, whether that's Wayfair or Amazon or, you know, some other or Nebraska furniture market. That's somebody that you, you worry about. Um, well, um, yeah, on the topic of COVID nineteen, you know, retail is is starting to wake back up a little bit. Um, you know, it, it was essentially shuttered for you know a month, couple of months, six weeks or so. Um, but as it's uh, coming back up, um, you know, how do stores need to rethink the customer experience in the short term with this as a backdrop? Well, I think. Job one, certainly in the short term, is is making customers feel safe uh, to come to your store. Mm-hmm. Um, or if they're not able to come to your store, to figure out how you can still serve them in a unique way. And so, um, you know, I think there's lots of practices out there in terms of, you know, sanitation, um, wearing masks, uh, maintaining social distance. I think appointment shopping is a really interesting phenomenon. I think, you know, not only does that potentially allow you to control uh, the environment better, uh, but I think it also signals to the customer that you're taking this seriously. So I'm seeing quite a few retailers move to to more appointment shopping. Um, Virtual sales appointments, also I'm seeing a lot of retailers have success with that. Um, And, you know, in many cases, you don't need tremendous technology to make that, <laughs> to make that right. work. We're dealing with very high volumes. Yeah. You need a technological solution, but in many cases you can just use text, texting or a phone and whatever to, to make it happen. So I think you have to put safety um, and empathy at the forefront of what you do in the near term. I think over the longer term, you know, it's just hard to say, I mean, I've sort of started to look at it as the, the pre-vaccine post-vaccine 
environment because I don't think, and I'm obviously not an epidemiologist, but I, w- I would say it's hard for me to see how we get back to some semblance of normalcy until, from a health standpoint, COVID-19 starts to feel much more like the seasonal flu rather than what we're currently currently experiencing. And so hopefully there will be a highly effective vaccine that will be widely taken uh, sometime next year, but we don't obviously know know that for sure. So I think in the meantime, we have to um, plan to have a lot of these practices in place and hope that we don't see a significant resurgence um, of the virus before the vaccine and other treatments are, are readily available. Um, well, of the retail innovations, you know, that have come on, you know, because of this, you know, do you see any that might have any staying power? Well, I think um, the ones that have staying power, I think, are the ones generally that have been gaining traction for a while. I think buy online, pick up in store, order or uh, return online or, or <laughs> buy online, return in store. Mm-hmm. I think that those um, have been gaining traction for a while. I've been surprised because I've, I've worked on that stuff for like 15 years now. And we had very good success many, many years ago with that. And I'm surprised that um, retailers have been slow to, to pick that up. Uh, and, you know, curbside pickup is just kind of a version, a version of that. Um, I think the less, I guess what I'll say, answer the question a little bit different way. I think there are kind of two powerful questions that have come out as relates to innovation that have come out of the COVID-19 crisis. One is, why did it take a crisis for so many retailers to innovate? Uh, I've seen quite a few, and I've been asked the question, do I think that the COVID-19 crisis will will make retailers fundamentally more innovation, more innovative. And I've said, well, I hope so, but I doubt it. And the reason why I doubt it is because some seismic shifts, you know, which I go through in the book have been occurring and have been pretty obvious for many, many years, yet so many retailers did not act. And so I'm not sure what it is about COVID-19 that fundamentally will change the culture of a retailer that is not wired to say yes to innovation. Um, but, But I hope I'm wrong about that. But I think that you know, what we've seen is, turns out a lot of retailers can actually put some things into practice pretty quickly. <laughs> and in some <laughs> cases, it's because they weren't that hard to do. In other cases, it was they were already working on it. Like I know one retailer who's in the home business that accelerated some things that they've been working on for like two years. And you know, it's great that they did it, but there's part of me which is to say, well, how does your board feel about that? Like, shouldn't your board be concerned that it took you that long to pull the trigger on something that has obvious customer benefit. So anyway, I, I just, I think, I think it'll, it'll be interesting to see whether um, there is really an underlying change. Um, now, some of the things that are, that are increasing like contactless payment and maybe more voice activated sorts of, you know, basically touchless kinds of technologies I think, you know, they may have more persistent growth because the conditions for them have fundamentally changed. You know, the reason why people use contactless payment up to this point wasn't really a health issue fundamentally. Now, I think, you know, certainly some people will be more um, more aware of that. Um, 
So I think, you know, it, it depends, but I, but I think um, the other lesson is one of the reasons why I think there's been a lot of resistance to curbside pickup, for example, is this idea, well, we need to get the customer in the store because when they're in the store, we'll sell them more stuff. And, you know, I think if you're taking care of the customer, it should work out. Like, I think you should not edit out ideas just, you know, that have very high customer relevance and could give you a real edge just because you're basically trying to find a gimmick to try to sell customers more things. Um, so that has been, I think, a, a gating factor for some of this innovation is it doesn't meet our way of thinking about customer success <laughs> as opposed to thinking about what does the customer really want and value that we could do in a remarkable way uh, and, and even give ourselves a leadership position. Um, so I'll just give you one quick example. It's not a home furnishings example, but Central Market, which is a, a super high-end supermarket where I live, um, well, they're out throughout Texas, but I live in I live in Dallas, and they rolled out curbside pickup um, at least a year ago, and they've redesigned all their stores to accommodate this, and they are far ahead of every other grocery store in terms of the technology to make it happen, the processes to make it happen, and pretty importantly, the physical layout. Because if you're going to do a significant amount of curbside pickup in a grocery store, it logistically, it just doesn't work the way parking lots are laid out and the way your store is laid out. But they designed curbside pickup to really be a great experience. And it's built into the store and they've spent the money already. So they're killing it in terms of, in terms of curbside pickup because they decided and I don't understand, they're not a client of mine. I don't understand exactly how they got to that point, other than they're very, very customer centric in that store. And they're constantly innovating to meet customer needs in new ways. And I think it must have just become obvious to them that this was what customers wanted pre pandemic. And um, this was a real source of competitive advantage for them that they could get a first mover advantage. Just turns out that they got lucky. That they're particularly well positioned, um, given given what's happened with the pandemic. But but I would ask, you know, as a retailer, I would say, you know, what are those innovations? You know, if we really understand the customer journey, if we really understand where technology is moving, if we really understand what gives us a competitive edge. What are those innovations in the customer journey that we can do now or start working on now um, that aren't you know, so just responding to a crisis because, uh, you know, crises, crises will come and go. Hopefully we'll never have a crisis as bad as this one again, or at least not in my lifetime. Um, but that's, but that's the work of innovation. And, um, you know, it does take a lot of discipline and, and um, a willingness to be, uh, to take more risk than, than a lot of retailers have historically been comfortable with, but the greatest risk is not changing. Right. I mean, I think that's, that's the lesson, whether we're talking about peer one or, you know, Bombay company before that, or, you know, Eddie or, you know, Levitz. I mean, you can, you can go through um, a whole host of players that have gotten into trouble and, you know, they mostly got into trouble because they weren't innovative enough. Ultimately it's going to be the customer that determines whether something succeeds or fails. So. Yeah. I mean, there's very few retailers. I mean, Amazon might be the only retailer, maybe arguably Walmart that can really, lead customers or Apple, I guess, you know, in another mm -hmm. world, but that can really lead customers to innovation. Uh, you know, they can set sort of the reference standard that, that, 
that maybe people, you know, do things that maybe people hadn't thought of. But for the most part, you know, my experience doing a lot of consumer research and working at big retailers and small retailers and with clients is usually the customers are leading you to where they want to go. But it, you, you have to do the work and, and be creative to really see um, some of the opportunities. I worked with um, a client, big sporting goods uh, company a few years ago, and they're doing quite a lot of innovative things, uh, not because of me, uh, but I got to see the beginning of their journey. And most of the things they're doing, um, they either gleaned from deep customer research or and or they saw these innovations occurring in other categories, you know, other retailers, and they basically brought them into their particular environment. So the ideas are usually out there, either in the minds of your consumers or some of the, the shifts in behavior that are happening at a low level or innovations that are occurring in another sector. So you've got to do the work to go in and, and discover those, become aware of them, you know, accept the degree to which they might fundamentally change change your business model going forward and then be willing to experiment with them and see which ones really gain traction. Okay. Well, I'm going to um, open the opportunity for anybody who is watching or listening in, you know, if they've got any questions. Um, but in the meantime, while we wait on that, um, I guess this is a good time for final thoughts. So. Well, I... I I think that, you know, I would just, I would just amplify um, some of what I said before, which I think is, is do the work to really understand your various customer journeys, you know, both by the types of customers you serve, as well as the different purchase occasions that you might be in, because certainly it can be the case that somebody, you know, a customer who's super price oriented shopping for a mattress may have a very different customer journey than uh, somebody who's very style conscious shopping for uh, you know, their dining room suite or whatever. So, so, I mean, I think you have to be mindful of the different types of customers and the different sort of purchase occasions, but understanding how those customer journeys, uh, understanding what they are, how they might be shifting and understand where there's either uh, pain points or friction points in the journey to eliminate. But I think more importantly, where, where are those places to really, as I say in the book, amplify the wow, you know, how do you really do something in that journey that, really is very, very relevant to the customer, um, very unique, and hopefully makes them uh, you know, buy from you, be more loyal, and tell their friends about it. Right. Um, nothing's come in, so um, I think that yeah, will... Every uh, possible question. Yeah. Good job, us. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that will just about do it. So, Steve, um, thank you so much. This has been an enlightening hour. Um, you know, I... There's been a lot of really good information here. Hopefully, people who've tuned in, yeah, there's there's you know something that uh, they can take from it. Um, real quick, if they're interested in the book, where can they um, obtain a copy? Sure. Well, just about it. That uh, the books are sold. You can, you can find it in hardcover and ebook and audiobook. I say that if you want to support the man, you can buy it at Amazon.com. If you want to support <laughs> Smaller independent bookstores, uh, I'm, I'm sending people to bookshop.org, which is a relatively new platform, but uh, they um, have a great selection and they give their profits back to independent bookstores that are part of their network. So those would be the two places I'd suggest, but there are others as well. 
Very good. All right. Well, Steve, thank you so much. And to everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. Thanks. Have a good day.